We are in the book of Hebrews, so if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Um, in the Pew Bible in front of you, it's page 941. We're in the book of Hebrews. This is a book that is, uh, we don't know who wrote it. There's a lot of debate about it, but it seems clear that it was written uh, in the apostolic age to Jewish Christians um, who were tempted to return to their prior way of believing and, and walking with God uh, and returning to old practices that were wrapped up in the temple. And the message of this book is essentially that Christ is greater than all that has come before, that all that God has been doing, he is the climax of what God has been doing in the world. He is greater than, than um, the old covenant and the way that God related to his people then. But really, Christ is greater than any other savior that is out there. And so um, those reading this book and those hearing this message are to persevere trusting in him when we're so tempted to slide back into believing other things and walking in other ways. And so this is a great book. It's very relevant to anyone who's considering Christianity and trying to explore what is this all about to believe in Jesus. Um, there's, there's multiple arguments in this book about how Christ is greater than this or this or this. And, and all of those, I think, are relevant to even questions we have today and temptations we have today. Uh, we've been looking at the first two chapters of this book where, where the argument is essentially that Christ is greater than angels. And that seems kind of like a maybe a slightly odd thing to argue. Um, but in this first two chapters, the authors talked about how Christ is actually the creator of all things and the sustainer and really the one that all of history is aimed at. He is the goal of all creation. More than that, he is the greatest revelation of God. He's the climactic revelation of who God is because he is the exact imprint of God's nature. He is the, the radiance of the glory of God. And so he, better than anything else, reveals who God is. And today, we're going to see that part of this argument in the first two chapters is that Christ is the greatest Savior. And next week, we're going to see that Christ is the helper that we need. And so if you um, kind of hear those different arguments that are wrapped up in this first two chapters, you'll notice that the author is saying that Christ is the true prophet. He is the great prophet of God, the one who reveals God most truly. He is the great king, God's great king, the savior and helper of God's people and the heir of all creation. And also that he is the great priest of God's people, that he helps them. And so um, as I read chapter two today, um, maybe you'll hear that being echoed in our passage. So let me read Hebrews chapter two, verses one through 18. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than angels, namely Jesus, 
crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Living God, help us So to hear your holy word, that we may truly understand it, and that understanding it, we may believe. And believing it, we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So as I said, we're looking today at Christ as the Savior. We've seen in this passage the last few weeks that Christ is the heir of all things, that is, He is the exalted king of all of creation, that all things are ordered towards this climactic moment when Christ is going to be seen in all his glory, reigning over this eternal kingdom in glory. And the argument in these first two chapters has been that Christ is greater than angels. Angels, he says, uh, the author says, are just ministering spirits. They are just servants who um, minister to those who will inherit salvation, that is us those who receive the message that he's proclaiming today. It's Christ who is what he calls in our passage today, the founder or the pioneer of a great salvation. Now that word salvation, of course, if you've been in church, we we talk about this all the time. You hear it, you probably use it. Salvation implies great peril, great need, uh, the need for deliverance. And that's not always the way we use it in our everyday language, right? We we use this language of being saved in kind of flippant ways, right? We say to people, oh, you are a lifesaver. You know, you really saved me from, and often we mean things like, uh, you know, boredom or inconvenience or embarrassment or awkwardness or uh, unpleasant circumstances or illness or maybe romantic emptiness. We use this language of salvation in sort of trivial, low-stakes sort of ways. And it's important that we don't confuse the language here and the claims of our passage and of Scripture and of Christianity more generally, that Christ is a Savior bringing a great salvation. This passage that we've read, and I've I've hit on these verses every week in uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, that's kind of the, the exhortation and the warning of our passage. That's what this first two chapters is. There's an exhortation implicit in it and a warning to us. 
Um, and it's to the church. It's to God's covenant people where um, the author is saying, you need to pay attention to this message that you have believed that we've all received and embraced. You need to pay attention to that. Don't lose sight of it. Cling to it. Continue to ruminate on it. Hold fast to it because it is possible to be a part of God's people and to slowly drift away and neglect what we hear in scripture and kind of forget the um, the, the magnitude of the salvation that is given to us in Christ. And the warning here is that in the past, God's people had this message from angels, good message, an important message. And when they didn't listen to it, um, there was judgment for them. And it's even greater for us today who have here received an even greater message um, that if we neglect this message, there is a greater judgment for us. So it's a warning to the church to pay much closer attention to the gospel and not neglect it because if we fall away, we are in danger of a greater judgment. But of course, this message is also relevant to everyone. If you're not a part of God's people, you're not part of the church, it's relevant to you today as well, because even if you're exploring who Jesus is, um, you should take heed of this message. It's a message of great salvation. It's a wonderful thing, and you, you can't afford not to pay attention to it. Um, imagine if you got a voicemail about inheriting a large sum of money. Just imagine you pick up your phone, you know, so what's this about? And it's not one of those robocalls, you know, you know, this is somebody else. You can tell this is an actual person calling you, maybe a lawyer from some other state. Hey, I want to let you know that um, you are the inheritor of a large fortune from a distant family member. I need to talk to you about that. Now, in this day and age, I know a lot of us might delete that because there are a lot of scams out there. But probably some of us would go, "Ooh, that sounds like it could be a pretty amazing thing. That's an important message. I'll get it later. I'll check it later. No, you'd follow up on that. It's, an, it, it's, a, it's a valuable treasure that might be yours. Why would you neglect that? And, and that's really what Christianity is saying, is there is a valuable inheritance that can be yours. You need to listen to this message. It's, it's good news, right? Um, maybe related to this, uh, imagine uh, that you are going on a long journey to see a loved one and uh, you need very precise directions to get there. And, and maybe there's no phone service up there. And so you have to take, like in the old days, like the MapQuest printout. And, uh, and so, you, you know, as you go on that trip, it's the only way to get where you need to go. You don't lose, you don't kind of neglect that map. Like you hold on to that. You make sure you know where it is and it's secure with you. You pay attention to it so that you get exactly where you need to be. That's that is what I'm saying today about this message of Christ. The future is too beautiful. The news is too good to not pay attention to it and to hold fast to it. So Christ, we're going to see today, is the great Savior who is uniquely qualified to bring us to glory. That's the way the author puts it. The salvation that is a great message to us is that God is, is bringing us to glory. That is, he, he offers to us transformation of our mortal bodies these bodies that are dying into um, beautiful, powerful, and immortal bodies that will live forever as kings and queens over a new creation in the very presence of our creator and redeemer. That is what this salvation is all about. And we hear in this passage that Jesus is uniquely qualified to bring us to glory, to bring many sons to glory, it says. And it's because he is the creator, sustainer, and heir of all things, and he is the greatest revelation of God. And it's that Savior that has come into the world, taken on human flesh, sharing in our humanity, that he lived and suffered and died for us and was raised in glory 
so that we might be swept up into this life. He is the founder or pioneer is the way that the text puts it. He, he's traveled this road, this, this life of, of human temptation and suffering. He traveled this road. He was faithful. He died for us and he was raised again so that we might go from death to life. And now he is a mediator. He is the one that stands between us and the Father and he brings us to God. This is what our author is saying is a great salvation. And all of this, our author tells us, is a gift to the people of God, to the church. It is a gift. It is by the grace of God, he says. And of course, what is a gift? Gifts are freely given. They are not earned. They are something that is on offer to us, and all we do is receive them. We, we, we take what is given to us, not because of what we've done, but it, because it is on offer to us as a gift of generosity from the giver. And this passage is, is ripe with this language. It says in verse 14 of chapter 1, uh, or I'm sorry, of chapter 2, that we are the inheritors of salvation. It says in verse 16 that we are the children of Abraham. And in verse 10, of course, that, that we are the sons that are being brought into the glory of God. Now, with gifts, there are two mistakes that we can make. One is we reject the gift and say, I don't need this gift. I don't need your gift. That's one mistake that we can make. And the other end of this is that we treat the gift as if it's something we have to earn from the person. And we try to pay them back or we try to uh, prove to them that we deserve it in some way. And it totally nullifies what the gift is. And so I want us to see today in three different ways who Jesus is as our Savior, what is on offer to us, and what it means to receive this by, uh, by faith, to receive this gift from God. And to pay close attention to this. So three points today. I'm finally getting to my outline. Three points today. Uh, propitiation, big word, purification, and, and uh, death defeater, I think is the way I've worded it. So these are the different dimensions of this great salvation that the author speaks about. So first I want to talk about this word propitiation. It's in verse 17. So if you look at chapter 2, verse 17, you'll see it right there. What is propitiation about? Well, first of all, um, that dimension of our salvation that the author speaks about has to do with the fact that all of us are guilty. All of us are guilty. I was reading something recently. It was a, a person who's a mediator in conflicts. He kind of steps in and helps people work out conflicts. And he, he had this little um, thing that he had written where he said, uh, what people often don't understand in conflict is that um, no one is innocent. No one is innocent. Everybody's got some guilt. Almost, I mean... Hardly ever is there anyone who's a, a pure victim, right? That everybody contributes something to the brokenness of the relationship. And often the most dangerous people that enter into these mediations are those who think that the guilt lies wholly with the other person. Those people are guilty. I'm the innocent party completely. And, um, and what he's saying is, is, look, everybody is guilty. And that's really the message of scripture, uh, sort of writ large, that um, all of us, are idolaters and transgressors. All of us worship that which God has made and that leads us to live in ways that go counter to how God has created us to live in love of him and love of neighbor. And so all of us have offended God. All of us have uh, offended his honor and who he is. We've neglected to recognize his lordship as our creator over all things. And also we incur debts that we're, our lives are meant to be stewarded towards God's purposes and we don't live the way we're supposed to. And so we incur these debts. We insult our maker. We rob God of what he's owed. And the result of this is that it brings the, the judgment of God. It brings his wrath. It alienates us from God. And so 
Part of what the author is telling us today is that Jesus deals with that dimension of our sin. In verse 17, he says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That is, um, God had to come and be like humans so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for their sins, for the sins of the people. That word propitiation is a weird one. We don't use it a lot in everyday life. But a propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God against sin. Um, it is the language of temple. It's a cultic word, but it also has legal dimensions. And um, the idea is that God is king over all things. And in Israel's history, he dwelled in their midst. And there would have to be a priest that would come in and slaughter a goat in order to um, satisfy the wrath of God so that the people of God could be in right standing with him. It was a way of making atonement, of bringing two parties that were alienated together through sacrifice. And the, the death of the animal really was a foreshadow of, of Christ himself. It was, it was saying to us, we actually deserve to die. And, and something has to die if we're going to be able to live life with God. And so this animal was paying the penalty uh, sort of symbolically for the people of God. And what the gospel tells us is that Jesus is the priest who offers actually himself as this propitiatory sacrifice, that the wrath of God was satisfied in Christ's death on the cross where he bore our judgment. And therefore, God is just to punish our sin, but also a justifier, one who takes the guilty and sets them right with him. That's what it brings about, justification, being in right standing with God, reconciling us to God. So we often talk about forgiveness. Jesus brings forgiveness, or he brings um, a propitious attitude from God. That, that word means favorable toward that through his death, he makes God favorable toward us. Alienated parties are brought together in peace. Now, um, we fail to pay attention to this message, this dimension of our salvation in two ways. One is we often downplay our need for salvation altogether. We're, we're not guilty. This is, if you're maybe a more secular leaning person, this is kind of typically the, the, the route we go. We, we just say, I don't I have an offended God. I'm not a guilty person. Um, I, I don't need to be forgiven. Right, I've just lived my life. Everybody kind of needs to do their thing. I'm not guilty, right? Um, and I, maybe you've talked to people like this, or you read. This is kind of in the waters in our culture today. But the reality is, I've found that people don't believe that really deep down. Everybody knows that they're guilty in some way, and I think that's behind a lot of the sort of self-medicating and the numbing that that we turn to in all these dysfunctional ways of living, where um, we know we have made mistakes in relation to other people. We've not treated people how we're supposed to. Ultimately, that dishonors God who made us to love others. And so we've got this guilt. And instead of acknowledging that, we stuff it down, pretend like it's not there, and we, and we numb ourselves out in many ways. But others recognize, yes, I'm guilty. But rather than accepting the grace of God, we try to deal with our guilt through our own efforts. And so we strive to sort of prove we're, we're good or we make up for our mistakes. And it, it produces this endless striving to be good. And it never really um, can penetrate the guilt that, that we have, though. And so um, we need to hear that all of us have to be saved from God's judgment through the work of Christ. We're all guilty. We all live in distorted ways. We've all offended God. We've all dishonored him. We're living destructive lives. And only Jesus can save us from our guilt because he is our propitiation. The second dimension I want us to see today is that Jesus purifies us. 
Now, the problem here that this addresses is that all of us are corrupt. All of us are stained. All of us are damaged. Now, um, let me ask you this. How would you feel if everyone could see all the things that you desire and think throughout your day? How would you feel about that? My guess is you would feel some deep shame if everybody could hear your inner thoughts throughout the day or see kind of what you're doing or, or see what you really desire. That, I think all of us, if, if we were seen totally by others, we would feel incredible shame, right? Um, have you ever surprised yourself um, at how ugly or cruel or self-centered you can be and asked yourself, what is wrong with me? I've done that. <laughs> have you ever said, well, why, why do um, people do bad things? One answer that we commonly hear is that, well, people don't have enough resources and they're not loved enough. And that, that certainly plays into why people behave the way they do. But um, don't we think that rich people who are loved still act in greedy, selfish ways? Yes. What's going on there? The, the reality is sin corrupts all of us. None of us are the sort of people that we should be. We're corrupt. And that way of living, this corrupt way of living, it, it marks us, it stains us, it damages us, and of course, other people as well. We do bad things because we are corrupt. We are not the sort of people that can live in the presence of a perfect God. And so we deserve judgment. We deserve to be cast out from the presence of God. We deserve to be left to our the, sort of the decaying effects, the corrupting effects of our own sin. But the author here tells us that Jesus makes purification for our sins and sanctifies us. In verse 3 of chapter 1, so backing up a little bit, um, he, introducing the book, says, After making purification for sins, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then in chapter 2, verse 11, it says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, or really are all of the same kind. And that is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers. What the author is saying here about the son is that he took on human flesh. He became like us humans in order that he could be a mediator between us and God. He had to become the same sort of thing that we are so that he could stand between us and God and bring us into the presence of the father. And he does that by purifying us, by cleansing us, by sanctifying us. That's the language that's used here. Purification is a, is a type of sacrifice or a washing that brings cleansing and healing to us. And sanctification is this language of setting us apart as those who are for special use by God, right? I mean, imagine if you're going to a wedding, you look and you look in your closet, you pull out something you haven't worn in a long time, and it's a little dusty or something like that. And so you, you get it dry cleaned or you wash it, you lay it out on your bed, you, you iron it, you make sure it's all good. You are purifying it, you're setting it apart for special use, right? And that's kind of what God does with us in Christ. Jesus is the high priest who offers himself as a purification offering to sanctify us and cleanse us. He takes our impurity and our corruption and our uncleanness, and he washes us through his own blood that he shed on the cross. And the result of that is that we are made whole and cleansed and then set apart for God's good purposes so that we can experience renewal. Now, just like with the previous point, we fail to pay attention to this great salvation in two ways. Often we deny the stain. We deny that we're broken. We deny that we need to be transformed, right? We, uh, maybe we claim that we're a victim. That's the problem here. I'm not corrupt. It's just that I've been 
treated poorly by others, or maybe it's society as a whole, or maybe we say, I'm not broken. I just need to be more positive. I need to focus on positive things, not negative things. That's one route that a lot of people like to go. But the other side, again, is another form of the self-improvement project. Rather than receive the grace of God in Christ, that he can cleanse us through Christ, we try to improve ourselves, right? And there's a huge market for this today. And I think there's there's value in this. How do I grow and establish better habits? And, and that those are all really good things. But if that's all we're doing, that we will never actually deal with the stain and the corruption that's at the heart of who we are. We all need to be saved from corruption because we're all stained and damaged and living in ways that increase our sense of shame. And only Jesus can save us by purifying us through his own blood and renewing us to do his will. Then finally, our author tells us that Jesus is the defeater of death. And he tells us this in verse 9, also verses 14 through 16. Um, And here, the problem that is being addressed is that all of us are going to die. Now, this is not something I really have to argue for, right? This is, this is the obvious one. Death reigns. All of us are going to die. Um, recently, one of my kids, I kind of got onto them um, because they blurted out, well, maybe these people are dead, you know? And I'm like, okay, that was very flippant to talk about death that way, and we don't need to live with that sort of fear. But um, the reality is a lot of times we don't want to face the reality of death. Uh, we don't like to think about it. Um, but the reality is, you know, Christianity is worthless. It is worthless if it doesn't deal with this problem. All of life is lived under the shadow of death. In many ways, ways that we don't even think about, the, the choices we make every day, the things that drive us, the things we worry ourselves with, are all because we know death is looming over us. We're threatened. We will die someday. We know that. It's how do we stave it off as long as we possibly can. And because we live in that fear of death, the Bible says we live in a sort of bondage. This is one of the tools of the devil to control us and to lead us to live sinful lives. We live stuck. This is where addiction comes from, that bondage in the fear of death. And so the author tells us Jesus deals with this as well. In verse 9 and 14 and 15, uh, he says, but we see him for uh, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you hear what he's saying? The devil wields death over us, to keep us in slavery. We live as slaves to death. We know that death is coming. And it says the son became human. He became lower than angels for a time to experience life and ultimately to go down into death, to to be in solidarity with humanity. And he defeated death and destroyed the power of the evil one by rising again from the dead. That's the good news of salvation. Jesus defeated death and the devil disarmed him by taking away their power when he rose again from the dead. And so the condemnation and death that we deserve, he bore for us. The death that could not keep him shows that the death will not have to keep us either. We have everlasting life because our death becomes an entry into the life of Jesus. Now, there are two ways we fail to receive this great salvation as well. We can deny that we need to be saved in this way, right? I mean, we all know we're going to die, but we work very hard 
to just act like, well, death, maybe that's all there is. You know, you live and you die. It's just what it is. Or maybe you just distract yourself and, and try not to think about it as much as you can. And one of my jobs, unfortunately, as a pastor is to remind you that you will die. Because sometimes we have to face that and to be woken up to the seriousness of what's at stake. We will die. Some of us are fighting that. We, we just, uh, we, you know, we're going to try to live as healthy as we can. We're going to eat right. We're going to exercise. We're hoping in science and it'll bring technology to prolong life or maybe someday overcome it. But that's just another form of denial. The reality is all of us have to be saved from death. We're living in bondage to the fear of death. And only Jesus can save us by rising up from the dead because he welcomes us to believe in him and experience eternal life. Now, I don't know which dimension this morning of this great salvation, uh, which, which one of those resonates most with you. Um, but all of it, all of these are for you. They're all right there for you to grab hold on to and to cling to and to walk in. Um, my, my guess is some of us, um, we needed to hear today that Jesus deals with our guilt. You live plagued with a sense of failure and wrongdoing, and you need to remember that Christ has paid the penalty for your sin. And some of us today probably feel this brokenness and we feel like there's something wrong with us and we feel like we've damaged ourselves or been damaged and we need to hear that Christ cleanses us and renews us and that's on offer as a gift through faith in Christ. And some of you are feeling stuck and addicted like you can't change and you look ahead and you just feel like the only thing ahead of me is, is death. That's, that's where my addiction is, is leading. And you need to hear that Christ offers you freedom and joy and life. This life that Jesus offers us has to be received by faith. That's why the language of this passage, I alluded to this earlier, multiple times in here, we see this language of grace. He says that we are inheritors of salvation, right? You don't inherit something because you deserve it. It's, it's given to you. It's handed down. You, you become an heir, not because you've earned it in some way, but it's a gift um, it says in verse 16 that we are the children of Abraham. This is the language of family. God has worked by promising to Abraham that he would be a blessing to all the world. And it's his family that God has promised to save. And if you have your faith in Christ, you, you get a new family. You are adopted into this family to become a child of Abraham, an inheritor of God's promises. Adoption is a gift. You don't, you don't earn adoption. It's given to you. It's done on your behalf. He says in verse 10 that we are sons of glory. This is to share in the glory of Christ, to be free, free from guilt and shame and free to be righteous and good and, and joyful. This is a gift given to us. The great salvation of Jesus Christ says that we do not live, have to live with guilt. We do not have to live with shame. We do not have to live with fear. You can go through your life, know that you're forgiven, be restored to God and to other people. You can live your life uh, knowing that Christ has healed you and is healing you. He is taking away your shame, that he's cleansing you, and you can be restored to honor again. You can live your life knowing that there is power to change whatever you're stuck in, and you can be given life forever. This is the good news. And this, friends, I know you've known this before. My, part of my job is to just tell you what you know and to remind you of it. This is the great message of salvation. Do not ignore it. Now, if you're not a Christian today and you're not sure, again, what you think about all this, I just want to say um, this may sound too good to be true. It may sound pie in the sky. And I want to tell you, it is good news. It's the greatest news. And so it's worth exploring. It's worth looking into. 
Because um, if, if it's true, it's the greatest news that could ever be. And so don't live like a cynic or a skeptic and just say, oh, that could never be true. Investigate it. Talk to us. Let us walk with you and show you why we believe this is worth putting our faith in. And if you're here today as a Christian, you're part of the church, you're a member in good standing, I want to say don't neglect this message either. Don't stop paying attention to it. I know that you are tired. I know that you are busy. I know that there's a lot going on, but this is a message we have to return to every single day. We got to meditate on God's word. We got to cling to it in prayer because this is how God's grace is given to us in this message of salvation. So as we go to this table, this is um, just another means by which this message is given to us to remember and to take it in. In the bread, we see that Christ gave his body to bear our guilt and to conquer death. And in the wine, we are reminded that Christ shed his blood to cleanse us and to purify us from all sin. So all the salvation that I just preached is here for you to take in, to uh, appropriate, to cling to, to pay attention to, and to trust in once again. So let's pray together.